The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Philemon 4-7. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all of the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of the Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Awesome. Aubrey, thank you so much. That was fantastic. You know, um, I've seen a few people in this service and and also in the earlier service that uh, some of you may know I was a campus minister for a time at uh, Vanderbilt, did a ministry called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. And uh, it's always uh, beautiful and humbling to me to see uh, former students, a part of our uh, church here, especially as, as their former campus minister, uh, it's humbling to know that they're coming back and, and being a part of this ministry as well as I know many of you were a part of that ministry. And, you know, people used to ask me as a campus minister, they would ask this question every every so often that we're in a church or, you know, missions group or something like that. I'd say, how's, how's RUF going? How's the ministry on campus at Vanderbilt going? And, you know, the answer that, you know, many people think is, okay, well, you have so many students or you have this program going on or these lives are being changed. And one answer, though, that I heard from a friend that, uh, that I began really adopting myself, which was once I really realized what he was saying, was uh, ask me again in five to 10 years when these students have graduated and they're not on campus anymore, but they're in churches and in jobs and in uh, with roommates and friends and coworkers and uh, moms and dads and, uh, and and thinking about like what that relationship, what that really looks like. What does that look like for them to take hold of the gospel well beyond anything that uh, even I would have given them or other campus ministers would have given them on campus. And around this time every year at the end of the, the, the school year, we would have a gathering uh, at, we met on Sunday nights sometimes at, at someone's house. But we have this one specific special gathering called Senior Night. And everyone would pack, 50 to 60 students would pack this room. Uh, and it was a time for me, I would stand up and just kind of read a verse similar to what you, you even heard here or from here, Philippians that just said, I thank my God every time I remember you in all prayer and just kind of set the tone. But really it was for the seniors Uh, for people in the room to thank the seniors. So the seniors had to sit and listen for a while and just let them know what they meant to them. Not about how hard they worked or, you know, all the cool things they did, or but, but really about them and their character. And it became this such a refreshing night of affirmation that what would actually happen is not only would the seniors sit and, and, and listen, then it would turn that the seniors would begin encouraging and speaking back to the rest of the people in the room. And we would be there for sometimes hours that it was just so encouraging and beautiful. And, 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 the, and the phrase that I heard nearly every time from at least one or two people when they would leave uh, was, I just feel so full. I just feel so full. 
And obviously they weren't talking about, you know, food or just getting words of affirmation. They were talking really in a sense that something about that evening struck so deep into their soul that they just felt overwhelmed and refreshed. You know, the question I have for you and for me, really, if I'm being honest, when was the last time you felt that kind of full? When was the last time you felt so full in that regard where you felt like the deepest, most vital parts of you and your soul were just upwelling with refreshment from the encouragement of hearing the good news just being spoken back and forth over you? You know, we're reading a a letter from Paul. If you're unfamiliar with Paul in the Bible, he writes a lot of letters to churches. This is a letter that's actually different than the other ones. It's easy, it'd be easy to miss. I, I threw out this kind of challenge to our church last week, just kind of a fun little thing of, uh, let's everybody read this letter to Philemon uh, as many times as we can until we finish the book. And, and here's why. It's so small, even when you flip through, if you had a Bible in your hands, you could flip through it and just miss it. It's, it's one chapter. It doesn't even have multiple chapters. It's just verses. So that's why you see four through seven. It's not chapters. It's just 25 verses. And in this letter, different than all the other letters that he begins by saying, to the church at, to the church at, he says, to Philemon. He's writing to a person. And he's writing to Philemon about what does he need to think as he is a, a, a owner in those times that we talked about some last week, these, in, those, in that culture and time as an owner of a slave named Onesimus who ran away and runs into Paul, becomes a Christian, and then Paul writes a letter to Philemon to say, hey, he's become a Christian. I'm going to send him back to you. How do you think he's going to receive him? No longer just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. How, how would Paul begin a letter like that? <clears throat> how do you think he would? Do you think he would begin by saying, okay, now let me tell you, you, you got a lot to learn, so you better receive him back. There's, too, there's a lot for you to grow in. He doesn't begin by shaming Philemon. He doesn't even begin by demanding In fact, in this letter, you'll see over and over, he says, I'm not going to demand you receive him back. He begins by bringing him into fullness. Do you notice the language that he began here? He began by talking about Philemon and what he knows to be true about his character and who he is in Jesus. Because isn't it more out of the fullness of who we are that when we hear how to grow, that it makes growth an encouragement rather than just a critique of performance review. But when it strikes to the vitals, to the depth of us, and then we hear we need to grow, hey, can you receive him back? Isn't that where out of this fullness, Philemon, bring Onesimus this fellow Christian who may have wronged you and may be in a different social class than you can now be brought into the same fullness that you experience and show in your own church. So we're going to look at this letter 
It's a beautiful letter about this fullness and to the aspects that Paul mentions about Philemon. And we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at his sharing and we're going to look at refreshing the saints. So two brief things about this. As you notice in this, uh, he begins with just deep encouragement. And he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, and then notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, you are doing this. He says, I hear about these things. But this is the word coming to him. Uh, this has happened to me a lot recently. I don't know if it's just, you know, you, I'm noticing it, but the pocket call thing, I mean, I'm getting a lot of people pocket calling me or I'm pocket calling people. And, it, you know, it's always the funniest thing because you, you pick it up and it's just, you, you know, you hear that or, or maybe just garbled talking in the background. One of the best is when somebody pocket calls you and then it's like a voicemail and it's like you get this two minute voicemail. You're like, what did they want to call me about? And then you realize, and what do you do? You listen to the whole thing because you're like, you want to know what do they really talk about when they don't know that they have called you. And But the biggest fear isn't just when you receive it, it's when you've done it, right? You look at your call, somebody calls you back or they go, do you mean to call me? And you're like, oh boy, like, what was I saying? You know, you ask, what was I saying in the moment? What was I doing? Um, you know, what's interesting about how Paul begins this? He begins this letter by saying, because I hear of your love and faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. The news that's coming in to Paul's ears, possibly even from Onesimus himself, the slave that ran away, is that Philemon in this church that met in his home because they had to at that time. They, they didn't have buildings and also the authoritarian government of Rome didn't allow them that. They were persecuted. So they had to meet in homes that the aroma of walking into Philemon's home in that meeting wasn't just the way that the church was, but it was also when they left. There was this refreshing, loving character that that Paul had heard about, that he did, and that he created there. And there's a word here of what, what Philemon does. It describes it. And it says in verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of everything good that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, when I read this and I was studying this, commentators say over and over that this one verse is the most difficult verse to translate in the entire letter. And the reason it is is because there's a number of words that are moved around or could be shuffled but are particularly difficult to translate. And the word sharing is one of those. Because when you read that on the outset, you say, oh, sharing of your faith. We typically think of sharing as like going like this and like maybe, a, maybe Philemon is good at speaking to people who may not be in the house church. But it actually is a much more comprehensive word. In fact, the word sharing is the word koinonia. Uh, ironically, you know, we're meeting next week with uh, our Koinonia location right behind us. Uh, and we're going to have a joint worship service with our church and uh, Koinonia. And then when Dr. Micah Edmondson named his church Koinonia, there was a reason for that. Because that word is so much more comprehensive than we think of sharing. In fact, it was so comprehensive, as I studied it over and over, I got a million different words to describe this from a myriad of commentators. Some of it was generosity, some common faith, some partnership, some just giving. But I think the, the, the one of the best definitions that I read that I thought was so beautifully put was this. 
a common participation in one and the same reality. Listen to that again. A common participation in one and the same reality. Now that takes it to a whole new level because it's not just your participation. It's not just a generosity. It's an activity. In fact, it's described that this word, Paul takes a word that's used in everyday vernacular and takes it to a theological level. That he says it's a reality that shapes everything you do and you are in common with it. One of the best illustrations of this, and people who I think flushed this out was a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard that name. Uh, he was a German theologian, martyr in the 20th century. Uh, there have been a lot of books written by him and about him. Um, he was martyred, actually, because he was in on a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, he was a preacher who was a part of an underground seminary and saw the atrocities that were going on in Germany. <clears throat> There's a lot about him that's fascinating and amazing. One of the things I think was cool and yet hard is when he came to visit the United States in the late 30s, early 40s. And, you know, it's always, it's always a vulnerable thing for somebody to look in and give their critique on you from the outside. And Bonhoeffer, as he came and, and, and looked and gave his kind of critique of the American church. Now, this is in the 30s and 40s but I think it could be very relevant for us today. His, he didn't say this, but in, you know, summarizing, he said, the American church can be summarized as a mile wide and an inch deep. That is not necessarily in the sake of that there's not enough churches or there's not enough of the teaching, but that he said, there's not enough of the deep relational depth that connects to the who we are in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but there is a lot of loneliness. I and mean, we're way past his assessment. And I think the question would be, what is that participation, that common reality, that same reality? You know what he really was pushing at? He wrote a book in prison called Life Together. Some of you have read that. It's a really small book. It's an excellent book on this. And he hits on the exact same language. I'm sure he did as a seminary professor unpacked this word koinonia of what this reality really is in God, in under the scriptures, under the word of God. He really described it as often we want, and not, he wasn't just talking about America. I think he was talking about all Christians seek to pursue an ideal or a wishful dream of what it looks like for us to just be in you know, relationship together and common practice, but what God wants is a reality, a real life together and all the mess and all the difficulty. Listen to what he says from life together. He says, innumerable times, a Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wishful dream, but God's grace speedily shatters such dreams only that fellowship with face, which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Do you hear what he's saying? I think it's beautiful. He says, it's, it's, it's like that great song. I just heard it again. Megan and I were able to go hear um, some um, singer-songwriters and one of the Songs is an old, one of the guys wrote this old song, Sean Colvin's song, What a Beautiful Wreck You Are. I don't know if you remember that song. Go, go back and listen to it. It's a great song. 
and to hear it live again is incredible. That is what it is. The, the, the koinonia, the common reality in Jesus is the beautiful wreck that we are. And often I think we hope and wish for an ideal and try and set up ways that we have just the right relationship with, just the right place, the person, the, the, the right couple that, oh man, I'm friends with her, her but um, he's not friends with him. You know, you kind of like, you know how it is. Those, all those little ways that we look for what fits just right. What koinonia is, is not idea, not experience, but real and in the faith of who we are in Jesus. And here's how we know it. Because how does God, and, and, and Bonhoeffer picks this up in his book, Life Together. He says, you know how this is based? It's based in reality because the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, which I know is a mind melt for us. But simply put, he has perfect relationship and yet he reaches out to us to bring us into relationship with him. Into the deepest most common reality in and through Jesus. See, the difference in Christianity and any other philosophy is that, that koinonia, this is why Paul picks it up deeply theological, is, and we think, oh gosh, deeply theological. Actually, deeply theological only means deeply relational. It means that God himself came to us and puts himself into, brings us into that reality by clothing himself in our own flesh, taking on the difficulties of separation, isolation, and what koine, the opposite of koinonia is, the non-sharing, and brings us into participation in the reality of the good news together. And think about that. If Jesus is willing to do that in us, and Paul is saying, Philemon, you're willing to do this, and this is what I hear about what your church is. When Onesimus comes back, someone who is a complete different social status, someone who you consider personal property, is going to return back to you. I'm going to send him back to you. And I'm not going to demand that you bring him back in. That's what Paul says over and over in his letter. What I want you to know is that the fellowship that you have with Jesus is what he brings back in, that same aroma that you're, everyone else I hear about is exactly what Onesimus gets to experience because he has the same reality. His reality is no longer just slave, master, property, owner. It's now in Jesus. That's what we share. That's what we share. That's what we have. That's the, the aroma in there. And, and it's interesting as he continues to talk about not just the sharing in the word and who we are in Christ, but he, he uses this word twice and it'd be easy to, to miss. He talks about the saints and refreshing the saints. He says, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ for all the saints. And he says again in verse seven, for I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You know, when the word saints is thrown out there, it can be, and I don't know how many of you may come from a Catholic background, some of you I've talked to about that. But the language saints is typically something we pick up. You know, we typically think of things like, uh, you know, 
the, the, a person who's set themselves apart as holy or righteous, right? Uh, we think exactly what Billy Joel said, you know, I'd rather uh, laugh with the sinners and cry with the saints. You know, there's that separation kind of thing. But what it's actually getting at is not someone who has separated themselves apart. It's actually someone who the Lord has set apart. See, Paul uses the language of saint over and over, not to refer to specific people, but to everyone that's in the church. That means actually that it's not someone out there, it is you. If you are a a follower of Jesus, you're a saint. It even comes from the same root word, saint saint is sanctified. It means a setting apart. It means God has set you apart for himself, not the other way around. So in fact, Billy Joel's song, we could even say this, that it's not necessarily, you know, laugh with the sinners and cry with the saints. It's that we are both set apart by God and we are the sinners that he brought in. So we laugh and cry together. I mean, if you want to know the truth of it, and that's who we are in him. But that's what he gets out here. He says, you're refreshing the hearts of the saints. And so he kind of hits this tone of how deep and wide is this refreshment? There's a word here, heart. And it says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. It's a, it's a really weird word. I, look, Paul uses the word heart in his letters eight times. And three of those eight times, if you think about it, are used in this letter alone, the smallest one of all. So he's wanting us to understand there's a really depth of this. But when we hear the word heart, we might think of one lane of like our feelings, right? You may even go back to that fullness of sitting in that room is, okay, man, I I just feel full. But what Paul is getting at is something more profound than that. It's actually a a word, not cardia, but it's a word. I I tried to pronounce it in even the first service. I'm going to mess it up. Think of this, splagnacha or splagchana. I can't even say it right. There's like so many consonants. It's splagchna. What it's getting at is, a f- is, is not just like the feelings, but the whole person. It's every part of you. You know, it comes back to you as kind of this confusion where I remember when I was in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was going to seminary, and I worked in this uh, ministry called CMDA, Christian Medical and Dental Association. You may have heard of that at some point. I was able to do some small groups with all of these like medical students and dental students. And we would talk about like certain words, you know, and they would come in, and this is just so wild to me still. Like I would be coming to lunch to do a small group and they would be coming in from like talking of like working with someone's spleen or like pulling teeth, you know, like, okay. And, and we would talk about passages like this that use language uh, maybe even like from when uh, in John's gospel, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, this, this Pharisee, and he says, you must be born again to have eternal life. And for, for that language for Nicodemus is like born again. That's weird. Like I can't be born again. I'm already born. How do you do that? You know, I remember having those pas- and passages like this where when I'm talking to them and they would have this idea of what's the heart, what's born again, and you're like, okay, here's the literal. It's almost the same way we talk, and I don't know if you realize this, but we often use this word, I feel like. You know, I feel like, you know, man, I feel like my job's too much. I feel like I'm tired from this. And you know what we're actually saying when we use the feel like? We're actually saying, I think. Feel like is actually a substitute, but we've used that because we've put feel on it. 
because so many times we can be feeling oriented and, and narrow in that. What this is getting at is the whole person and whole personality. It's like this deep level gut. In fact, after the first service, somebody came up to me and grabbed me in the stomach, which was a little funny, and said, Splagnatcha or something. I was like, oh, I mean, but that was kind of it. It's like, okay, good illustration. It's the whole internal self. It's something that hits to the depth of us. And it's a refreshment that comes into us in a way that doesn't just refresh our feelings. It refreshes our whole self. And to the, to the opposite degree of this, you, you know the moments when you wish you had a deep refreshment. In fact, the same word for refreshment could be rest. That, that strikes you at your core. In the Old Testament, this word that's used for refreshment was used for how David gave the gift of rest and refreshment to the whole kingdom of Israel. That by his kingship, that was a gift that he by squelching enemies and, and caring for that was described that that was a gift that he gave. That is similar to what Paul is trying to say about what it was like to be in this church with Philemon. That Philemon brought a, a, an aroma of rest in there that hit to the depth of their hearts where they needed refreshment. Not feelings, but whole self. And you know the difference. I, I have a friend who's a, who's a pastor that talked to me, and I've heard this before, but this, this particular friend of mine talking to me about his sabbatical, and this is often a thing that pastors take. They'll you know, take a month or six months or whatever it is. And he was describing the fact that he was like, okay, before I go on the sabbatical, I need to learn how to do it. Because just like any of us, you know, you go for a week to the beach or you get away from work for a little bit and you come back and you go, man, that was great. But you don't feel like you got any core depth of rest at that moment. You just come right back into it. And I remember him talking about this and other people saying, hey, who's your coach for your sabbatical? In other words, who are you going to talk to about how to actually treat the time away to where it gets to the depth that you really need it to get at. And I remember him telling me a story at one point about when he felt the depth of his emptiness and then was able to understand where does that rest need to go? And it wasn't even in a moment of anything we would think. It was just out in the yard. He comes in and he just bawls crying and loses it and realizes now I've hit the bottom. Now I know where the refreshment that I so desperately need is there. And, and I, think, I think it really begs the question for us, do we know the depth to which that refreshment, that rest really needs to go? I mean, if you actually allowed yourself to stop for that long and for that much, it may not be even time, it could just be that long a silence. I mean, some for us, the silence even in confession is deafening. But to sit long enough to say, Lord, where is the depth of me that I am unwilling and I just keep going by, that I need the depth of your welling refreshment of rest in me. This is why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, after the Pharisees have had their say, he says, looks at the crowd and he says, come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the same word, rest and refreshment, same Greek. How does he say that? And he doesn't say, because you throw off everything and just get rid of it. He actually says right after that, take my yoke upon you because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. He says, you're taking something up. So it's not just disengagement. It means engaging in the place and the reality that strikes the depth of you, the rest that we so long for to move away from what we are typically prone to, which is performance and things that just delay the refreshment of the reality that we need. The ideal, the dream, the wish that, we, that keeps us from getting to the core of where we are even in bad forms of meditation. We're good at bad forms of meditation, anxiety, (laughs) those kind of things. We're great at that. Things that we can focus on and think about and try and control and adapt to what we can put our hands around. What does it look like for us to stop and look to the reality of who we are in Christ and take up and actually do active work. It's active work. Take up the yoke of Jesus. To know that who we're following isn't looking at us over and over and saying, hey, that's great, because what's the motivation that Paul does here? Again, he's not shaming Philemon. He's also not commanding him. He's bringing him a fullness. What would it be like for us as a church to operate out of a fullness of who we are in refreshment in Jesus rather than a deficit. And to meet each other in those places where we hit the bottom and have someone in this room look at us and be able to say, I'm with you there. What brings you fullness? Real fullness. That strikes at the chords at what you want the most and you need the most. If we come to him for refreshment, it's not, and it's not just a small taste. It's something that, 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 this refreshment, by the way, is language that's to say it goes on forever. Look, coming to this table, you'll notice the cups are really small. This has happened to me more than once where you take even the bread, it's the smallest little bite and it gets caught in your throat. Little tastes, little bits of refreshment that are not to be in and of itself something that fills you, but it actually is pointing you to a deeper refreshment. It's pointing to a rest because it is what the body and blood of Jesus. It's not just food. It's the someone who gave himself who, what? On the cross, what was his words? It is finished. And he didn't mean that just by your working day to day. He meant that by your soul refreshment that you so need and desire. It is finished. And that's why we come back to this table over and over. You know that the rest and refreshment is also a future picture? Remember what we say at this table, and I say it often. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You know, one day we will take of a table that will have not itty-bitty cups. And the sharing, you know what the other word I notice? That sharing is a definition, an actual translated definition, 
is not just generosity or participation in one reality, it's communion. It's actually communing with the Lord and with others. This is what it means. When you taste this, you're tasting participation in one reality, in one Savior and Redeemer that will fill you full. And one day you will, one day, guess what? We won't ever be depleted. Can you imagine that? I asked you at the very beginning of this, when was the last time you felt full like that? Guess what? One day there'll be a moment when you never don't feel full. That was a lot of negatives. You will always feel full. Praise be to God for his work and what we get to taste at this table. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's stand together.